Hi, everybody. My name is Annette Wittenberger. I joined the Army. I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Chemical Corps out of Arizona State University back in 1999. I joined the Army actually as a... Out of curiosity, I didn't know I had family that served until years later in my life, which made it even more special. But I kind of just went with the flow. That's not really something I would recommend to everybody, but I, I did. I, I just took it year by year, and I just wanted to see what it was about. And then I ended up serving until I retired. You said you joined out of Arizona State. Yeah, I went to college at Arizona State University. Where did you grow up? I actually grew up in California, in Southern California, in what was a small city back then of Simi Valley. Simi Valley. Your husband, he is he still in the military? He is. He's still serving, and he is actually based out of Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. What was life like, not only having a family in the military, but... Your spouse being a service member, too. That was definitely a challenge. We served as dual military for over 17 years. And to raise a family from the beginning as a as lieutenant um, was, was a challenge. He was 18 months my senior. So it, it wasn't like his position's were always more important than mine, but he his because he was eighteen months senior ranking, we had to look at his career first in a sense because we knew he was gonna retire. I had no idea what I was gonna do. I literally just did it year by year. And to have to pick locations where we where we were gonna live based off of childcare and schools. And then jobs, that was just so, it was overwhelming and it was frustrating at times because I, there was a time where we were both chosen for command and I didn't know if I wanted command, but I interviewed and got accepted and I was like, hey, I'm going to be in command and he was in command as well. I was deploying. He didn't know if he was deploying and then all of a sudden he was. So it was, it was just things like that. Like, how are we going to do this? Both of us being deployed. And so it was situations like that that made us uh, really have to think, okay, what are we doing? You know, who's, who, whose career are we going to take, uh, you know, the first seat of? And so it was, it was hard. How old were your kids at the time? They're three and five. Dang. Mm -hmm. And those are some like pretty key times too. It key was. Ages. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very hard. You retired from the army. What was next? In my mind, I thought I was going to retire at 20. And so when I retired, it was a lot sooner than I had expected. So the plans that I had tried to make uh, just fell to the wayside. I was trying to adapt to being out of uniform. I was trying to figure out my life. So... What I thought I wanted to do, I no longer wanted to do, and I fell into.
into a very dark depression. And so that's where I created my blog because I needed a platform and a space to actually write my feelings down or I wasn't going to make it. I isolated myself and I became very distant because I didn't know how to live this life out of uniform. How did you get out of that funk? Because depression really is such a dark place and a hard place to be in and hard to get out of. How did you get out of that? Did the writing do it for you? The writing helped a little bit, but it was more of my my high school friends that, that had known me since I even joined the army. And then my soldiers, my former soldiers who saw something that was different. And if it wasn't for them reaching out and reminding me that um, I had more life to live, you know, that's, uh, that was really the key right there. Although I knew when you're in that, that low of a depression, nothing really can be said to you. You know, you can't, you know that you have life around you, but it doesn't matter. And so I had to constantly be reminded of that. And that's really what saved me. Did you, when, when people were doing that, did you find yourself saying, um, like if someone was trying to encourage you or lift you up and say, hey, you matter, life matters, you have something to offer, whatever they were saying, did you ever find yourself saying, screw it, I don't care? Um, or, yeah, you're like nodding your head, yeah? <laughs> yeah, several times. It's not like a one, they say it once, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. No, it's not like that. You know, mm -hmm. it took several times, several months, several forms of finding a a way to heal that, that had to be done. It was a work in progress. It really wasn't just, a, you know, believing what they said. It, it was hard. It was hard, and I didn't want to hear it. Do you remember a point where it's like the, the light switch was flipped, and you're like, all right, I'm fed up with myself. I'm doing this. Oh, gosh. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, it took my car accident to really have that wake me up. Yeah. It, it really did. And I would take my night, you know, I, so I was taking my, I was taking my nighttime medications and the mental health ones, I didn't put back in the drawer. I just set them on there. I laid down and I stare at them and I thought, you know, I don't want to die, but what I want to do is take these pills and just finish off the bottles, go to sleep and wake up and my problems be gone. And. And and then I just would shrug my sh shoulders and go to sleep. But after leaving them up there for a, a while, it became more real. And I was in that place that you're talking about where there's nothing anybody can say. I just don't care. I don't want to. And I would say to myself, and I kept on telling myself, it's not like I'm suicidal because I don't want to die. I just want to go to sleep. And. But I ended up going to the ER at the VA and just said, hey, look, here's my deal. 
later on, I was going to counseling about something completely different. And when I, when I shared that with them, the psychologist, and, and the thing that I loved about her was she was direct and very matter of fact. And I, and so I love that about her because she didn't sugarcoat anything. And that's how I am too with, with people. I'm direct to where I can be offensive because I, I don't sugarcoat anything. And it's not a means of me being rude. It's just me saying, Hey, here's what's up. But the thing that she said to me was, So I hear you saying what you're saying. And I get that you weren't, you say that you weren't suicidal. But it's also, she said, like you said, it's unrealistic to think that you can take a bottle full of mental health medications, fall asleep, and not wake up until your problems are solved. There's nothing realistic about that. And you know that, right? And I said, yes, that's why I said that. That's why I went in. And she said, so if you know that that's not realistic, and you know you don't want to die, but you are thinking about it more and more, don't you think you that would make you suicidal? And I kind of thought about it for a little bit and was like, mm, I don't know. But then I guess if I was honest with myself, maybe I was suicidal, but did not. Because she, what she said was, you can be suicidal and not want to die. Because you take that thing that's unrealistic and you apply it. And then some people end up dying from it and others end up not dying from it getting their stomach pumped or whatever the case may be. What, I guess, so with with that, my question is twofold for you. One, like, what are your thoughts on that? And two, did you ever find yourself in a place to where uh, suicide maybe seemed like the only viable option for you to get rid of you know, those problems that you were, or the depression. Yeah. So I, so I was, as I was listening to you share your story, which thank you, by the way, I, it made me start to think, you know what? Sometimes we don't really think about that. It's just the, how can we get rid of this pain? This, these feelings, we're not thinking clearly to, oh my gosh, I'm suicidal. We're thinking, how can I just make this pain to go away? Like right now. And so our thought process is completely different because we're not really all there. You know, it's it, we, we are clouded by making this pain go away. And so I've been through that a few times. I didn't really want to die, per se. I just wanted that hurt to go away. And I thought it would be better if my family didn't have to deal with that. Like, why should they see me in these stages of grief? Why are they seeing mom be so angry and lashing out and just road rage and all this? Maybe it'd be better if I didn't, if I wasn't here to show them that, that, and so it's, yeah, all those feelings. We're not really, we're not really thinking about that or the term that's given, the name that's given. We're just thinking about how do we just make it stop? Like, it's so much. It's overwhelming. It's it's just breaking us. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That is so that is so true. And I remember teaching teaching the annual suicide intervention course, and I was going through some facts and myths. And there was one person that was very vocal. Uh, I got to the 
I don't, I think it was, gosh, I don't remember what it was, but it, I think it, the question may have been, or the point that somebody was making was, well, if you attempt suicide, you're going straight to hell because you killed somebody. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. But this one person got very vocal saying, you, I mean, very opinionated. Just And she was very matter of fact said, something is truly wrong with a person if they even contemplate suicide. She said, life could never be that bad. And I, before I shared my opinion, I asked a couple other people to vocalize their opinion. But then I chimed in and I said, well, here's what I'd like to say about it. Maybe you have not gotten to that place where your life was never that bad. And for, to that, I say, good for you. But there are plenty of people who their life has gotten that bad. And that's where the suicide comes in. And the question that she asked me was, well, don't, I mean, don't you think you have to think about your family or think about this? Look at, look at what you're doing to them. And when you've been there, you think about like what that very thing that you just said, you get to that point to where you don't care about the other people. You care about just eliminating your own pain. That is where your focus is. And when you're focusing on getting rid of your pain, if, if dying is the only way to get rid of that pain, then you don't care about the impact that it has on other people because you're not going to be around anymore. So that's all you're focused on, getting rid of your pain, not suffering anymore, and that can be both physical pain and mental pain, uh, mental, emotional, spiritual, whatever. It can be any kind of pain. Right. So that's where that focus ends up being, not other people. Right. And I think if you're a person who uh, cares and gives and you're always giving and caring uh, for other people and about other people, you finally realize something somewhere has got to give and I've got to care about myself. And that's where I think a lot of that garbage comes up that you have to address. Absolutely. But that's me. No, and you're right. I mean, there are going to be people out there who just don't understand and they're going to say it's selfish or why, how could you do this? And I, I get all that. Um, but that's why I think we do what we do is to bridge that gap to help people understand that sometimes there is so much pain that you don't know how to deal with. And the only way is to just make it go away. And so making it go away sometimes leads to those other forms of um, dealing with it that people don't they just they don't agree with and and I get it I get it and uh so that's why we we share our experiences and say I I understand your your um opinion but I've I've been there I I know how this is 
And I'm sorry you think it's selfish, but that's just how it is. So, yeah, you're right. I'm glad that people have not been in that place to feel that much pain. Yeah. So how do you convince... (coughs) How do you convince somebody that has that mindset? Somebody who has the mindset of life could never be that bad to contemplate suicide. Or life could not be... That mu- that messed up where you attempt it. How do you convince that person that while it might not be like that for you, it can be for somebody else? Like, how do you convince them of that? Or at least, how do you relay that message to that person? I, you know, I, I can't convince anybody, really. I, uh, I just share my story. You know, there's, my family had no idea until they read the book. And they were like, oh, my God, you know, and so there is sometimes there is no other way but to just blurt it out. Say, this is what I was going through. This is how I felt. And not, I mean, they could sit there and say, well, don't you believe in God? And I was raised Catholic. We went to church every Sunday. I went to Catholic school. I was baptized. I went through all the, all the sacraments. But then there was still this. And And, you know, and I want to say it's okay because we don't say that enough. We don't say it's okay to have these feelings. I was brought up differently. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to to relay that message to the older generation because they're so firm in their beliefs. There's no way around it. No one's going to understand it. But for now, with the younger generation, we have I just have to tell them, look, I've been there. I know And I also want to share with you that that's not the answer and because I've made it and so can you. So that's that's the only way I think right now is to share your personal story and to share and to tell them that you've taken those pills. It didn't do anything. It didn't solve anything because it's still here. If you leave your family, you're showing them this, this and this. And so that's that's what I do. I just, you know, now that I'm in this space. And I'm still alive to be able to do this. I will continue sharing uh, my my sob story <laughs> of how I didn't think I was going to make it. So you said your family did not realize realize that until they read the book. The book. The yes. book. So let's talk about the book. <laughs> what prompted you to write it? I wanted to do more and I felt that by doing more than to me than just than having the blog and being on social media, I wanted to reach other people and make a different kind of impact. And there's people out there that still read books, which I should do, but I don't uh, enough. And so I, I wanted to put it on, in, on paper and in, in order to, provide hope for other people maybe if they read the deeper parts of my life that I did not share maybe that will help them take a different look at their life maybe it'll help them go through another form of uh, healing process all these things so I wanted to do that and it was difficult because my family's in it and I had to I had to reach out to them and say hey I'm going to talk about this part of our life, you know, are you okay with that? 
there are some things in it that I did not reveal in the book because I'm still uh, trying to respect those people. And so I will continue to do that. But yeah, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to provide hope to people based off of, I know I'm not the only one that went through these kinds of experiences. So those who read it that have been through those types, uh, there's a way to heal. And I wanted to help do that. Yeah. And that's, I think that's great. Um, and that's why I'm going to be doing this series, uh, on like mental health, suicide, sexual assault, domestic violence, and addictions, because all of those are, um, like unfortunate situations that people find themselves in. Well, mental health is not an unfortunate place. It's when you have, <laughs> it's when you have issues with your mental health mm-hmm. and people don't want to talk about them for various reasons, whether it's a security clearance or uh, a perceived sign of weakness. And so I have found the more of my story that I share and talk about, the more, like, the stronger I feel and the stronger I get because, um, it's one of those truths we hide or something like that. <laughs> I've heard, <laughs> I, I know, I've heard that somewhere. I'm like, hmm. Uh, but it, I do think it's true and that, that, uh, we, we want to hide behind a facade that I've got it together and everything's okay. And it's really not. And so we just hide behind it. I mean, I, there was a point in time for me that I was homeless. And fortunately, I had paid up front two years of a membership to a gym. And that's where I took my showers. Because I had paid up front, I had a place to take my showers. Yeah. And so I would, I, I would shower. I would go to the laundry mat when I had absolutely nothing else to wear but what I was wearing. Um, and I would, I would get dressed and go to Starbucks and get on my laptop to look for a job. And I would have, and, and I was still going to the church that I was going to. And somebody asked me at, after church, we had walked out into the parking lot and we were the last ones there. And she said, so where do you live? And I pointed to my car and I said, right there. She said, oh, that's your car? I said, yep. She's like, awesome. So where do you actually live? I'm like, right there. <laughs> She's like, do you not understand what I'm asking you? I said, yeah, you want to know where I live? That's my house right there. And I said it with a smile on my face. And she started laughing because... I had this quick wit about me and she thought I was joking. She thought I was making a joke out of it. And I'm like, no, really though, for real, for real. Yes, I'm serious. No, I'm not making it up. And even said that with a smile on my face. And then she was in tears because she felt bad that she was, she thought I was joking when I was being serious. I'm like, look, that's not your fault. I joke all the time. So you really didn't know if I was being serious or joking. But it it's, you know, and I think that's why I wasn't really hiding it. I just, it's just not something that I would talk about because I wasn't exactly proud of it. The fact that I was in that place, 
but I think it's really important for us. Yeah, you know, one, I think for for if I don't struggle with mental health issues or suicide or anything like that, and I run across you and meet you and you start telling me your story, I can't judge you because just because I can't visually see your mental health struggle doesn't mean it doesn't exist and it's real to you so if my struggle is different than yours I'm not going to judge you and say oh shoot that's nothing or say god I'm glad I don't deal with that because we all have our own garbage and baggage that we take around it's just a matter of you know, not judging somebody else because of their baggage. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that's why we forget the, the the invisible wounds. If people don't see it on the outside, then there's nothing wrong. So, and I, I, I totally get it why you wouldn't just broadcast it to the world that I live in my car. I mean, it's just it, because it's that stigma that's out there that we don't want to bring up anything like that because you don't want to be judged or looked at or be treated differently. So you're just like, I got, you know, and just continue mm-hmm. to go on. But inside, you're just like, oh my gosh, this hurts. Yeah. I, and you know what's hard too? I think in the military, we have this mindset in the military that we're always putting our soldiers first or our, our people first. And then we put ourselves kind of on the back burner. And then we get out the military. And it's like, I don't have any people that I'm taking care of. I mean, sure, like you have your kids or or family that we maybe take care of. But that means my own junk is now wide open for me to address. And that gets hard. And I think that can play a part, too, in why maybe the veteran suicide numbers can be so high because we we it's a culture shock to not only am I having to pick out my clothes every day but we're you know we're having to um function in a completely different environment and it's not what we're used to so I mean that's that's there's that but yeah I just I hate the stigma that there is that we want to why do we why do we want to brag about like oh man I broke my leg and that was the nastiest break hey I, I was playing soccer and I got the ball and I was dribbling down and somebody tried to kick it away from me and they split my bone in three places and we want to brag about that broken leg and that injury because now I'm walking around and I'm even running and I'm you know that's I'm gonna one up you can't touch that. Because I mean, that's like, that's the that's what's up right there. But then you your the neurons in your brain don't communicate to the other side of your brain the right way, and so you have to take a pill or a chemical to help marry up those neurons to do what they got to do. And we're all hush hush about that, right? Yeah, right. we get you know, we a v, we we're in a vehicle flip over. Uh, that it was overturned, and the scars are inside my brain. Those invisible wounds are inside my brain, not externally where I have to wear a cast. And so we won't brag about that, but we'll brag about the broken leg. So, like, why do we do that? Pride. 
we don't want to be seen. We want us to be seen as tough for getting our leg broken doing a sport, but we don't want to be seen as tough taking a pill to help us with our struggles, you know, because it's, I mean, I, it took me years to talk about the fact that I've been taking Prozac since 2009. I didn't want to, I was like, it's not something I talk about, but now it's like, you know what? I take it. It's part of my other 12 pills that I take, you know, but that's, it's fine. It's whatever. That's just, that's what I need, you know? And if I need it, then I got to take it. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm a pro at zacking you. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm sorry. Bad joke. <laughs> but you know, so, the, so somebody, the person I was talking to earlier was talking about how, like, she started her business um, of doing comedy because she really believes that humor, like that laughter, is the best medicine. Um, cause it get, it, it, it's a means of getting your endorphins going and that dopamine and stuff. And so, yeah, it, it and sometimes we just need those chemicals to, to take. Um, but yeah. So what's something, talk about something that you've covered in your book. Like if there is one, if there's, whether it's a, favorite story or your biggest struggle that you wrote about or just you know something that sticks out that if i don't include anything in this book i'm gonna include this is there anything like that in, in your book that you shared or your most the, like proudest moments kind of thing that you overcame something oh i don't know if this is my proudest moment but i think it's something that we don't talk about enough and that's the fact that i used um I was a master at masking all the things that I was dealing with. And the way that I covered it is by drinking or acting completely out of character. I was self-destructive. And I think it was because I had no outlet. I had nowhere to turn. I was an officer. I was a female. I was a leader. I was, you know, a commander. It's like all these things I was supposed to be. I didn't know how to be anything else. And so when I was struggling, there was no way I was going to go publicly ask for help because I was supposed to be tough. And so the way that I dealt with it was acting, um, acting crazy. And I mean crazy by doing things I wasn't supposed to be doing. And back then I, you know, I, there was, I didn't, I knew there was something wrong, but now that I look back at it, it was very bad. You know, and but that's the way that some of us, so probably a lot of us, knew how to cover up the things that we were dealing with. And I don't know how I made it by doing all that. Um, probably hindered my career a little bit, but now I'm here to share that to others with others to say, hey, um, there's better ways of dealing with this than doing all of these things that I did. And so that's one reason why I included it in the book is because, yeah, you see Annette now and she's happy and she's trying to save the world. But man, I went through a lot of shit before that. You know, I wasn't always like this. I was a bad person. Um, but it shows you that you can recover from it. 
uh, by doing these certain steps. You have, it didn't just happen overnight. It took years to be in this place now to be better, to try to better myself as a human, as a mother, as a spouse. But yeah, there was a lot. I went through a lot and I don't want other people to do that. Yeah. Did you, so you said one of the things that you did was drinking. Did your drinking ever get to a point to where, oh my gosh, I've got to stop. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw it, drink and drive, or I'm, gonna, I'm about to do something with this alcohol that's not, is gonna put me in a darker spot than I already am. I didn't learn until later how bad it was when my kid told me. Then, I probably shouldn't have been driving. No, I know I shouldn't have been driving, but I did it anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, so there were several instances where, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how I made it. Yeah. (laughs) I am sitting here saying, yeah, like, oh my gosh. I, I found my place in a spot like that and I didn't realize how bad it got until. I got up to go to work one day, and I was already thinking about alcohol, drinking that night. And as I was getting ready for work, I was drinking a 20-ounce bottle of Coke. And after I got it down to a certain level, I added alcohol to the Coke and took it to work with me. And... I mean, and even when I did that, I didn't even think twice about it. And it wasn't until later on that I was like, ugh, this is probably not a good idea. And if somebody said that to me, I would have said, probably? How about it's not a good idea? Right? <laughs> but I I was, like you said earlier, I didn't know how to address the pain and, and depression and issues. I had trouble sleeping already anyway. So... I needed to drink, and I felt like I needed to drink enough to fall asleep, to go to bed, so I didn't have to think about, you know, the the crap, the junk in my life, and I didn't want to address it. Exactly. So that's why, and that's why I was curious if you found yourself in that place too. That, um, yeah, it's it's scary, and it's so heartbreaking to realize that so many of us do that we've done Mm -hmm. that and it's not that's not okay you know but but i i used to put it in my coffee and go to work like "Eh, no big deal that is such a big deal now (laughs) you know like there's no way i could do that now we do that because i think if i don't know there's for some reason that was our way to handle things and um it's unfortunate Nothing like a cup of Joe and Kahlua. Coffee and Kahlua. <laughs> you know? I mean, I think I just put wine, straight wine in it. I put straight wine. I don't ask. It was the thing. I just, you know what? Yeah, don't don't ask. I didn't have Kahlua, so I just found whatever I had. <laughs> <laughs> that's how bad, that's how bad it was. I'll do anything, even if I have to put the red wine 
in the coffee. It doesn't have to make it doesn't have to make sense. It was nope, just it doesn't and it doesn't. that doesn't make sense to me, but it doesn't have to make sense to me. It's okay. <laughs> do you. You gotta do you. <laughs> oh God, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. But yeah, that's Yeah, I Boom. There it is. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny and crazy at the same time that life happens and then to handle life that happens, we do things that absolutely don't make sense. I mean, coffee and Kahlua is just as bad as wine and coffee. Well, Almost as bad. Uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, I don't, like, why? It, and it doesn't make sense. But like you said earlier, sometimes we do things and it doesn't have to make sense. It just, it's what works. It was our coping mechanism and we would figure out any way to do it. Yep. So here's a question that I'd ask you. Because you're probably out of time. Because um, you're like Superwoman in my book. For for the person that might be listening to this episode, who is struggling with mental health, and maybe says, "Well, I'm not drinking like they did," especially the wine part. Um, I'm still I'm still hadn't gone over that yet. Oh, uh, <laughs> no! But to the for the person who has mental health issues, and they say, "Well, yeah, I'm drinking, but I'm not an alcoholic because I can stop whenever I want to, and it works for me, so I'm good with that." Uh, who someone who might be saying that or whatever thing that they turn to, it can be. And I'm not going back to Woodstock when I say this, but like sex, drugs, alcohol. I mean, if it's, if doing, if, if doing any of those things is the, that person's coping mechanism to handle or deal with whatever that, that mental health issue is, like, what do you tell that person? How do you tell them? Or what do you say to that person to say, Hey, like, you need to give yourself a fair shake or a, um, an, an honest, self-assessment to see where you really are. How do you tell somebody that? So I resonate with all that so well because I said that to myself. And so if you're saying that to yourself, then there's a... Because I've said that. I'm not out. I'm not... I can I can stop when I want to. I... You know, I have control. I have... You, you, you've got this. You don't though because you're trying to convince yourself already so if you have if you're going through these mental health struggles and you're trying to convince yourself that there's not a problem there probably is and you need to fix it now until you know it's it's too late and so i'm just i'm very very lucky that i have made it this far in life not not like career-wise but that I'm still living because of the things that I did so I just would tell you to please please 
reach out to somebody to have that conversation about the things that you're doing because it could cost you uh, your career or your life. And um, I, that's one reason why I, I am so open about it is because I want to help some, save someone from the destructive behavior that I had. Yeah, that's awesome. I, and I think, I think part of that problem why people don't do that is of the, I got this mindset. Like, I, I've got this. I can handle it. And we think we can, even if we have the desire to say, okay, yeah, I, I'm fed up with the drinking. I'm fed up with the whatever, fill in the blank. And so we get fed up. But then we think that we've, we can handle it, we think, by ourselves. And that's just not true. Cause if you could, you probably would not have gotten into the drinking in the first place. I mean, let's be honest. So, you know, so I, I think, and I think the, the thing too is with the, with the security clearance to the, and this, you know, whether you're in the military or on the civilian side, if you have that level of security clearance, you know, it, it actually, believe it or not, if you self-refer to get the counseling that you need or the treatment or rehab that you need, that gives yourself more credit when it comes to a security clearance than having to be forced to go to one of those places, a, to a treatment facility. Right. I, I um, interviewed somebody who that was her job both in the, she was in the National Guard, and that was her job both in the, in the military and with one of those three-letter agencies that she works at, at D, in D.C., is that they look at that, not whether or not you got mental health counseling or that you have depression and anxiety or PTSD, but that you personally sought out the help. Because if it gets to a point to where it's not managed and somebody else has to tell you that, then how do we know that you can handle this top secret information right. when somebody has to tell you? But if you're in touch with yourself enough to, to be able to say, you know what, this isn't right right now. I, like, let me check with somebody else. Let me get help from somebody else before I go down this path. That's going to, you know, so yeah, it's just fun times. And I did not realize until recently how passionate I was about this, about mental health and suicide and addiction, because I see it in my own life and the impact that it's had on me in my own life. And like you, I know that my life could have turned out a whole lot worse than it has. Sure, I've had some bump-ins with places and things that I wish I didn't, but man, could things have been worse or turned out worse. Absolutely. So what's your, what's your last bit of advice to anybody? You know, whether, they, whether they're not sure about going on a journey to healing and recovery or maybe they're on that journey right now. They're working through their stuff. What would you tell them? I 
I wish I would have sought therapy sooner. I was too afraid, like you said, about the, the security clearance. And so I try to deal with that on my own. But for those that are still serving, there are so many nonprofits out there that offer therapy. I think we're just so afraid for it to get back to our command. But because, but since I've retired, I can't believe how many organizations are out there who want to help that it won't get back to your command unless, you know, it needs to. Uh, and I say that if you're going to harm yourself or harm others. Um, but they are there to give us those resources that we didn't have before. I didn't know about any of these uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. So now is your chance. If you want to get help and you don't know where to go and you think that it's just not safe to do it on the installation or the base that you're on, reach out to me because I can refer you. I have personally used these resources and my daughter has used these resources and I stand by them. So there is help out there if you just don't want to be um, known on, on base for it or hinder your career. So just, there are places, there are people, don't let that stop you. I wish I would have done this sooner and I don't want that to happen to you guys. I said, oh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I All right, I won't say it again. Yeah, I will. I love you so much. <laughs> you're my hero. Oh, no. I, you know, I just, there's a reason why we're still here. And so we need to continue to help those that don't know how to get the help. So oh, my I, gosh. This lamp. Makes my eye, you can tell, oh, shucks. Like, my eyes my eyes were filled with, like, water. Like, I think there's a leak. The plumbing in my body isn't working. There was a leak or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate it. It's, I, I really do. I appreciate you doing this. I mean, yeah, um... I do, I because it's, I mean, I, I know, I feel like a broken record right now, but it's just, when I think about all the stuff that um, I did or went through or experienced, man, and, and when I realized I was going through those things, to, um, yeah, I, gosh. I could ramble. It just like I, it's like I'm in awe because I, I mean, yeah, I'm done recording. Um, um, just in case you didn't know. Um, Thank you, and have a nice day. I state your name. Hello.
Olivia Nunn. Scott DeLuzio. Kim DeFiori. Eric Hellman. Kim Campbell. Katie Phillips. Michael J. Weiss Sr. Do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me. According to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. 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 So help me God.